we've, um, we've all made plans and then had those plans change at the last minute, right? Um, sometimes uh, minor plans, uh, your plans for the evening, your plans for the weekend. Sometimes, though, our plans that change are major life plans. The Ryle family. They went from rags or from riches to rags almost overnight. They've been a strong, wealthy, Victorian English family during the mid-1800s. But poor management of the family finances by John Ryle would send them into financial ruin. By June of 1841, the business and the family were bankrupt. Ryle was left with only his wife and children and two horses. The loss was devastating for the entire family, but the humiliation would weigh especially heavy on their oldest son, John Charles. J.C. Ryle had enjoyed the finer things of life. He'd gone to the best schools. He'd attended the most prestigious parties. He had been privy to all of, the, all of the luxuries of the English elite. He was tall and handsome. He had a charismatic personality, which led him to fending off women for most of his young life. He was raised in a religious family. He attended church regularly. But it was his time at Oxford University that would change his life and really, in many ways, the course of Christian history. It's said that J.C. Ryle was an avid sportsman. He took to the field with great command. But a serious chest infection would confine him to bed in the spring of 1837. And it was during his sickness that he began to spend some time reading his Bible. A short time later, that summer, he attended a church service and he heard preaching on Ephesians 2, 8, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It was this verse that, that God used to, to cut him to the heart and to save him. One of his biographers, Eric Russell, said of him, He was converted not by tract or by a sermon, but by the word of God. After his family lost everything, Ryle would later say this. He said, I, at 25, with all the world before me, lost everything. And I saw the whole future of my life turned upside down and thrown into confusion. But, but God would sustain him. And even though the family would spend the next, the next two decades really digging out from the mess, he managed J.C. Ryle managed to keep a God-centered view of his own trials. He wrote, Banks may break and money may make itself wings and flee away, but the man who has come to Christ by faith will still possess something which can never be taken away from him. And so Ryle's plans would change and he would pursue the ministry. Early on, because of his background, he planned for a more distinguished calling. But God placed him in small rural churches. Riley was highly intellectual. He was Oxford trained. He was overqualified. But he would serve his blue-collar congregations 
faithfully. But the, sh- the shame of his family's kind of fall from par- prominence haunted him. His early years in ministry provided him a very small salary, and yet he would still send home large portions of it to help the family dig their way out of debt. He told of wrestling with God in prayer, crying out to him, why would you allow this to happen to my family? It wasn't until years later that he would begin to understand that it was through suffering that God grew him the most. Over the course of his life, J.C. Ryle would marry three times, and he would lose all three wives to death. Yet in spite of the immense grief of loss, coupled with the the sort of sourness and, and bitterness that he carried from the bankruptcy, he continued to press on. He worked harder and harder in the ministry. His ministry accomplishments would would put most pastors to shame. See, in addition to his weekly expository sermons, he wrote several books that are considered Christian classics today. They're still in print. He wrote a seven-volume expository commentary series on the four Gospels. He had a tract publishing ministry that distributed gospel truths throughout the whole of England. In 1880... He was nationally recognized and appointed as the first bishop of Liverpool. I've said before, he's the best thing to ever come out of Liverpool. You can take that for what it's worth. He died in 1900 and was buried with his preaching Bible clutched to his heart. Nate Pickowitz said this of J.C. Ryle, that his legacy was nearly immeasurable. As nearly all of his books are still in print and continue to be re-released in new editions. His writing is clear and profound. His doctrine is rich and sound. His gospel focus is forefront. For these and many other reasons, Ryle is a favorite of many. But for me, it's his perseverance in the face of suffering that endears me to him. Having lost three wives and dug his family out of debt over the span of 20 years, all while serving joyfully in the ministry, is nothing short of inspiring. And I would argue that Ryle would not have been the man that he was were it not for God's sovereign allowance of adversity. And here's one statement that that shows us that Ryle learned the lessons that God had for him. He wrote this, True holiness does not make a Christian evade difficulties, but face them and overcome them. Clearly, uh, the Ryle family in general, and J.C. Ryle in particular, they had plans for life, and God intervened. So is it wrong to make plans? Is it wrong to make plans for our lives? No. Biblically speaking, I would say, I could actually make a case that it's wrong not to make plans. But in either case, we are called to submit our plans and our wills to the Lord, who is the one who directs our steps. And this is exactly what we see the Apostle Paul do as he brings his letter to the church at Corinth, his first letter, or at least the first one that we have, to a conclusion. But before we go any further, and before I read this, I want to point out a a minor point that has broad implications. There's two opposing philosophies of ministry when it comes to making plans, especially church plans. So on the one hand, you have these sort of um, 
big vision-casting pastors who lay out these big plans to accomplish huge tasks. You know, 2,300 members by 2023 or, or something like that. And on the other hand, you have those who say, well, man plans and God laughs, which is actually an old Yiddish proverb, not in the Bible. But we'll see today that Paul is making plans here. And he's doing, he's doing so by, by following the pattern that we see established in, in many places in Scripture. And he submits himself to the plans and will of God. Remember Proverbs 19.21, which says, Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So I want to read this final chapter of 1 Corinthians again together. We're going to... Um, we're going to look just at a few verses, verses 5 to 12, and then we're going to skip down and do 15 to 18. So let me, but let me read the whole chapter together today. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. As Paul is concluding his letter, he says this, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also you are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there may be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you and, or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers." Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He'll come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge, I urge you, brothers, you know that the house of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunus and Achaeus because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's stop here and pray together. Lord, I pray that you would give us what we need today, that you would feed us from your word, that we might see the marvelous things that you have done, Help us to submit to you and to the word that you, are, um, you have given to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In Paul's writings, um, especially as he finishes his letters, 
he often included a, a bit of a travel log at the end, um, indicating his plans to visit the people that he's writing to. And I think this is helpful. I think even just a, a quick read of any of the conclusions of Paul's letters, or, or this specifically, is helpful because it reminds us that he is a real pastor writing to a real church. These are real people that he cared about deeply. He's written some difficult things to them. Paul has rebuked the Corinthian church. He's, he's pushed them. He's, he's worked to focus their attention on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and so it's fitting that as he comes to a conclusion here, he lets them know that help is on the way. And, and in this, he, he really takes as his model Jesus Christ, who, who does the same thing for his disciples. And in John chapter 14, albeit from a, from a bigger perspective, John 14, verses 1 to 6, Jesus said to his disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then just a few verses later, he makes this promise. Same chapter, verses 15 to 17. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Help is on the way. And in fact, is already here. In fact, I would argue that Paul is reminding them um, of something he's going to later tell the Ephesians when he writes to them. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so this morning, we need to look, as we look at verses 5 to 12, and, and then we're going to skip down to verses 15 to 18, because I, I think they, they seem to fit together nicely we're going to come back and look at verses 13 and 14 next Lord's Day. But for now, I want you to notice what I just read there. there there's a connection between verse 5 and what follows and, and the first four verses of the chapter. So in that opening paragraph of chapter 16, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Paul gave them some very practical instructions regarding the collection. And now he's giving them his, really his planned timeline of when, he, when he'd like to come and pick up the collection in order to bring it to Jerusalem to help the saints there. These final thoughts are they're really, really a lot more than just simply travel plans. I, I'm hoping to come to you soon and all of these people say hello, right? It's so much more than that. 
truly he is reminding them that Christ has not left them alone, but rather has established an office of under-shepherds who are tasked with caring for the flock of God, which was purchased with the blood of Christ. That's what he's reminding them of here. So as we get into this, we can see really three plans and a charge. Three plans. Begins with Paul's plan. We can see that in verses 5 to 9. Let me read these again. He says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps will stay with you or, or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective work has opened to me, for, and there are many adversaries. So as, as Paul lays out these plans... Um, it's clear that he thinks, he actually thinks strategically for the sake of the gospel. Can you see that? See, see strategy, strategery, as I always want to say it, strategy isn't only for politicians. It isn't just for business owners or, or generals. Christians are engaged in a spiritual war, Right? Paul will write to them in his second letter in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 6. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. And if, if this entire book, if the entire uh, letter of 1 Corinthians is, uh, is about the war against sin and iniquity, both in the church and in our individual lives, then this chapter is about sending reinforcements and, and resupply. There are four strategies that Paul uses here as part of his plan. And I believe these ought to be our strategies as, as we make our own plans as well. First, he always submits himself to the will of the Lord. Paul always submits himself to the will of the Lord. All of his work and all of his travel plans are conditional. They're dependent upon God's plan and, and God's will for him. Notice the language he uses. He says, I intend, perhaps, I hope. And then the kicker really is, if the Lord permits. Paul has good reason for saying these things. Um, See, before he planted the Corinthian church, which we read about in Acts chapter 18, I, wanna, I want you to hear what happens to him in Acts chapter 16. So before he arrives in Corinth, in Acts chapter 16, verses 6 to 10, this happens to Paul. And they went through the region of uh, Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And they came to Mysia, and they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. 
And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, there's a lot of geography in those verses, but essentially those are all regions in what we now call Turkey. And God was calling him to Macedonia, which is like northern Greece. Achaia, where Corinth is, is in southern Greece. Paul has had the Lord drastically change his plans. He wanted to preach the gospel throughout Asia. And somehow, the Holy Spirit prevented him from doing so. We're not told how. It doesn't matter. Somehow, the Lord prevented him from preaching the gospel there. The Spirit of Jesus did not allow them, the book of Acts says, and instead called him to Macedonia. Paul has had his plans drastically changed, and that's not the first time. He knows as well as as everyone that that while the the heart of man plans his way, uh, the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 16, 9. Now, his statement here, if the Lord permits, at the end of verse 7, it's actually a a much stronger statement than we sometimes think of uh, James telling us that we ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And so we will say, God willing, right? God willing. Um, This this here, if the Lord permits, is actually a, a stronger statement than that. And the reason that it's stronger is because Paul knows full well that he is under compulsion to preach the gospel. He has one job, preach the gospel. He says earlier in this book, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, chapter 9. Sometimes when we say, Lord willing, I will do this or that, we're offering up some kind of almost pious platitude. But Paul isn't doing that here. He's not saying, you know, I'll plan to do that if, if, if the man upstairs is, allows me to. He's not being flippant. He understands that all of his planning, all of his, um, all that he is to do is to, to be obedient to the one who permits us to do some things and doesn't permit us to do other things for his glory. And so Paul always submits himself to the will of the Lord. He always submits. This is part of his strategy. He submits himself to the will of the Lord. Secondly, not only is his strategy to be submissive, but he's also very pragmatic in light of the priority of the gospel. Look at verse 9. He says, For a wide door for effective work has opened to me. A wide door of effective work has opened to me there in Ephesus. As of this writing, when he's writing these words, Paul's work in the city of Ephesus amongst the Christians of Ephesus is thriving. It is fruitful. And so he is willing to carry that on for as long as he could, at least to Pentecost, he says. As long as the door remained open to him. Even though though Paul's missionary trips were evidently very carefully planned, He remains flexible and was willing to change his plans depending on the effectiveness of the work. We've also done this. We've had various ministries throughout the history of the church, whether it's this church or others, um, 
that were good and right, that were important, and yet were ineffective for the purposes of evangelism or discipleship or whatever specific purpose that specific ministry had. So, for example, I mentioned last week um, that one of the, at one point in the history of Logansville Community Church, there were over 100 kids coming out to Awana on Wednesday nights over there in Logansville. Now, the true effectiveness of any given ministry is really only known by the Lord. But by the time I got to Logansville in 2012, Awana had ceased to be effective, and so the, the elders before I got there had decided to end it, the ministry. We've had VBS weeks throughout the summers over the years that saw similar results. Sometimes we're effective and sometimes we're not. In the end, we were not reaching the community with the gospel. But we continue, we continue to have a wide door of effective ministry in, for example, our Sunday school hour. The same goes for the the meals when we gather together once a month. It's not just a meal. Do you know that's ministry? I've probably told you some of this, but I thought, I thought that 2012 was going to be the last year for Logansville Community Church. But since about 2014 and 15, the Lord has seen fit to open wide the door for effective ministry. And so we, as a church, will carry on with the work that he has entrusted to us. Right? Sometimes churches hold on to programs that have long been ineffective. But the Apostle Paul, and therefore Scripture, doesn't waste time or money on ineffective ministries. But I also want to caution us right here. This is the huge flag we need to put up. Because by its very nature, ministry can sometimes seem ineffective. But like farming, planting and watering of gospel seeds are followed by seasons of waiting and prayer, knowing that it is God who gives the growth. Right? See, we can, we can be pragmatic, but I would say that we need to be reservedly pragmatic, always sensitive to and following the Holy Spirit's lead. Well, third, not, not only is Paul pragmatic and, and uh, submissive to God's lead, but he's also very pastoral. He strategically makes his plans on the basis of the pastoral needs of the churches that he ministers to. Corinth was a very troubled and, and complex church. We've seen this throughout our study of this letter, obviously. But it also appears that when he was able to visit them, After writing this, when he does finally get to visit them, it didn't go well. He's going to write in his second letter, which is actually probably his fourth letter. Uh, There's one before 1 Corinthians we believe that we don't have, and one between that we also don't have. But he's going to write to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says this. He says, for I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I caused you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? 
And as I, I, I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice, for I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. One commentary said of those verses there in 2 Corinthians 2, 1-4, that uh, Paul had a nasty confrontation with an unknown individual which caused him to beat a hasty retreat and fire off a letter of tears. That's the letter that we don't have. But you can tell from his words and from his tone there just how much he loves them and cares for their souls. While we don't know how many visits he ultimately made, uh, how many letters he wrote to the Corinthian church, it's clear that Paul believed that this particular church, which was, by the way, strategically located, this particular church needed some pastoral support, some pastoral guidance and, and care. It needed a longer stay by Paul than just simply passing through, as he says. And this idea of support, it actually has a, uh, it's actually mutual in his writing here. It's important to remember that the reason he gives them uh, for hoping to possibly spend the winter with them is that he wanted to give them the opportunity to support him and his ministry. Look again at verse 6. He says, and perhaps I will stay with you and, and even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. This chapter opens with instructions about the collection. And he's not tr transitioned away from that. Um, and while he doesn't, in fact, he says in this letter earlier, chapter 9, he didn't accept payment for his ministry when he was initially there. He was prepared upon a re return trip to accept funds as he continued his missionary work moving forward. See, th this too is a pastoral matter. Um, initially, his acceptance of a paycheck would have hindered the church. They would have been able to say, see, he's only in it for the money. He didn't want... He didn't want that or those sentiments to come between them and the gospel. But now that they're more established, now that they are even maturing as a church, he's able to point out the blessing that they will receive by supporting his ministry. He'll get to this more in 2 Corinthians, but this is what he's getting at here. So Paul's strategy is to submit himself to the will of the Lord, to look for pragmatic opportunities to minister while also desiring to shepherd the flock of God, to pastor them. And then finally, uh, above all, his, his strategy is spiritual. This is a spiritual matter. He says at the end of verse 9, there are many adversaries. Not only, not only does Paul personally have enemies, but the gospel does as well. He's faced many life-threatening situations, even in Corinth and especially in Ephesus. So have the rest of the apostles in their ministries. 
He's also fully aware that many unknown, sort of regular, everyday Christians were also being persecuted at these times. He was there at the beginning, after all, and involved in the persecution, maybe even one of the leaders of it. And as we make our plans and prepare for the years to come, even as we think of of our plans and, 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 and budgets for 2023, we must remember that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so it is okay to be strategic. Also knowing that our battle is a battle of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So Paul plans to eventually come, go back to Corinth. But until then, he gives them Timothy's plans. Look at verses 10 and 11. He says, When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now, it's actually likely that, that Timothy either arrived with this letter or at least shortly after this letter. Paul already mentioned back in chapter 4, verse 17, he says, I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Clearly, over, over his writings, Paul, Paul clearly holds Timothy in very high regard. He loves Timothy. He calls him his son, his son in the faith. Timothy will act as his um, apostolic delegate on several occasions. That means that he brings with him the, the message and authority of the Apostle Paul himself. Notice that Paul, Paul is emphasizing here that both he and Timothy are doing the work of the Lord, which means that this visit, this visit will likely bring some conflict Timothy's way. Especially since chapter 4 does tell us, as I said, that one of Timothy's tasks was to confront their arrogance. Paul writes this in an attempt to sort of tamper down any conflict. But he's also calling on them to support Timothy. And again, this means financial as well as through other means of support, like encouragement and a, and a warm reception. Look up to him, honor him. Timothy was no stranger to the Corinthians. They knew him. Acts 18 verse 5 tells us that, that he was involved. He worked alongside the Apostle Paul in the planting and establishment of, of this church. And so he's calling on them to appropriately honor Timothy and to meet his needs as they send him back to Paul. As he comes and reminds them of Paul's ways. As he comes and preaches for them. Disciples them. I would imagine he probably meets with the elders as he spends some time ministering there in Corinth and then goes back to work with Paul. And Paul also mentions Apollos' plan in verse 12. He says, Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but he was, uh, it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. You may remember from the first couple of chapters of 1 Corinthians um, that Apollos was most likely in Corinth after Paul had left. Essentially, he was, he was Paul's pastoral successor. And there were some 
in the church who, who pitted Apollos against Paul and the divisiveness in the church of, of sort of um, gathering for themselves the teachers that they loved the best, I am of Paul and I am of Apollos, divisiveness was so bad that Paul would say earlier in chapter 3, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. It's obvious here that there are some who, there are some who want Apollos to come back. And Paul even encouraged him to visit. You, you should go back there, Apollos. But for some reason, he did not want to at this time. And the way that Paul words that, it was not at all his desire Not at all his will to come now. It's pretty strongly opposed to it. Maybe, maybe a wide door for effective ministry had opened for him elsewhere. Maybe he thought a visit would, would not be good for the church unity that, that Paul was encouraging with this letter. Maybe he just didn't want to go. We don't know. Regardless, Paul says he'll come when he can but Paul is pointing out that while, while some in the church picked their favorite preachers, Paul considers Apollos a co-laborer in the gospel who is valuable to the ministry. I encouraged him, and he will come when he can. And then finally, skip down to verse 15. Let me read 15 to 18 again. He says, Now I urge you, brothers... You know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the saints of the Lord. Be submissive to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanas and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence. They have refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. Paul is giving them a charge about such people. People such as these, he says. We don't know specifically who these men are, except we know that at least the household of Stephanus were among the first converts to Christ in the entire region. In fact, in the first chapter, he mentions that he baptized them. We also see here that they had devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. In fact, that, that word there that is translated as first converts, it means first fruits. We saw a couple of weeks ago that that, that actually means something along the lines of the, the representative best. And so it's likely that this, this family, along with these other men here, they've stood firm in the faith. They have served faithfully. I believe these three men specifically mentioned were probably Corinthian elders since he uses the phrase um, fellow worker and laborer. I think there are more than just these. That's why he says such people. Um, Paul tells the church to submit to them, to follow their leadership, to recognize them. They've come on behalf of the church to, to encourage Paul, to refresh his spirit, and so they are to, to give recognition to such people. 
He will tell Timothy something very similar in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And again, the laborer deserves his wages. The apostle Paul is encouraging the church to follow the leadership of men that we don't know anything else about. We don't know anything else about these guys. But the point here is all of this, is this. As we make plans, as we trust in the Lord to direct our steps, as we, as we look at the challenges that we face, even in 2022, as it comes to a close, in 2023 here in another couple of months, we have no idea what next year will bring. We have no idea. We have no idea what tomorrow will bring. We have no idea what this afternoon will bring. But one thing is certain. The Lord has not left us alone. The Lord has not left us alone. He promised, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Help is on the way and is already here. Not only do we have the Holy Spirit, as Jesus has promised, but he also gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, and unknown, no-name shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so like Paul, we make our plans And we submit to the Lord who directs our steps, knowing that in all of this, he has not left us alone. He has not left us alone. He has given us help. And we are to help one another. We can be strategic as we make our plans. But we know that the Lord has given us the gift the gift of the apostles and the prophets, the word of God, we have their testimony passed down to us. The evangelists who share the faith and the pastors and teachers who teach us God's word. He has not left us alone. Help is on the way. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. As we look at I think particularly of these men in the end here that we don't even know anything about. I have to believe that they are faithful. As you call through the Apostle Paul, you call the church to submit to them. We have to believe that they are faithful, that they are doing the work of the ministry, that they are able to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Father, as a pastor, this is heavy. As the elders of this church know full well, these are heavy things. To to give an account, Lord, for the souls of those to whom you have entrusted to us, 
But Father, we rejoice that you have not left us alone. We take up the task that you have for us. We make our plans for the future. Father, we submit to you. We submit to your will. We pray that you would lead us as we move forward. That we would be constantly searching the scriptures, people of your word, that this would be a house of prayer. That the destiny of redemption Bible church would not be as we read in 2 Kings where God's enemies come in and destroy the temple, but that this would genuinely be a house of prayer, a house where your word is proclaimed. Father, if we stop that, if we stray from that, I pray that you would remove your lampstand from us. Father, I pray that we would remain steadfast as a church that we would stand strong on the truth of your word, knowing that you have not left us alone, that we have help, that we can look around to one another and know that we are in this together, that we are your people and you are our God. And so, Lord, as we come to the table today, we come with hearts of thankfulness, knowing that we are only here because Christ has purchased us with his own blood. that the bread is the body of Christ, that he went to the cross for us, that the cup is the new covenant in his blood that was shed to purchase us. Father, we come with hearts of thankfulness and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.